Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. I have the pleasure of having Tom Copeland on on the podcast today. Uh, we are actually, we are remote today. We are from uh, the outskirts of Lockhart, Texas, a.k.a. Miracle, Texas, or Jarden, for uh, fans of HBO series The Leftovers. Um, you definitely know if you're a fan of the podcast that, I, that I'm a huge fan of that show. So that has a little bit of extra significance, and um, happy to be here. Happy to have Tom on. It's been a while since I visited with him, probably back in two thousand nine. So Tom, you're looking good. Well, thank you, Cooper. <laughs> nice, nice to be be here. Period. So <laughs> right these days, especially. Uh, so Tom was a director of the Texas Film Commission. He now has he's been at Texas State, uh, my alma mater, and, and his as well. Um, in the theater department, getting things, getting sort of a film program and infrastructure set up there, which is definitely very much appreciated for for an alumnus like myself. Um, but Tom, let's let's go ahead and jump in. What what I'd first like to discuss is, you know, as you're a big advocate of Texas film, obviously, I want to talk about and bring to light the the film incentive programs that we've seen other states offer and kind of how that sort of played into the role of, of films being and films and television being produced here in Texas. Well, I, it's kind of one of those sort of things that sort of, uh, it's a good and bad, uh, you know, prior to all these incentives starting here in the United States anyway, it was always about, you know, who had the, the best climate, who had the best state, who had the best locations, who had the best crew and all those sort of things. And, and this, uh, this whole incentive thing started up in Canada back in the early nineties and then eventually led uh, to it being done here. But the situation in Canada was always about bringing in, in the beginning anyway, it was about bringing in a strong American dollar back in the nineties into their economy. And so these tax incentives started there. And so you had this exodus of filmmaking that went primarily to places like Vancouver and Toronto, Montreal, and, but, but they were all over the, the Canadian provinces, but it really was about the uh, American dollar. And then, you know, the dollar depreciated. And then later on uh, here in the States, I believe it was New Mexico and Louisiana who picked up on it first. And they used the same principle that uh, was done in Canada, which, Technically, to me anyway, doesn't make a great deal of sense because uh, it's not about a, an American dollar. Uh, the American dollar is what it is here. So, but at any rate, I to me, I always felt like it was always too high. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily against incentivizing. The, if you have something, incentivizing it, but it was always a little difficult for me to understand how you could justify some of these things. And so I'm not a real pro-incentive person anyway. And those things, you know, anytime you're dealing with government and, and any sort of government programs, it's, it's one of those situations where the government giveth and the government taketh away. And so there have been other states that have tried to do this and it hasn't worked out very well at all. Uh, so, but their whole situation was, in the beginning was, how they saw what was happening in Texas, they saw what was happening in places like North Carolina, Florida, uh, Georgia and, and different places back in that time. So how do we get it? Well, you have to build it. And in the case of Texas, it was probably at that particular time, at least a 20 year process of building up crews and infrastructure and everything that went on. Well, they didn't want to get into that. They wanted it immediately. And so they saw what had happened in Canada. So they just, you know, jumped on the bandwagon and, you know, I kind of think they gave the farm away myself, but, but at any rate, that's what it takes these days to get films into your, your state. So all of the reasons that Texas had been a leader, which we were for many years, when you looked at the uh, situations back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, especially the 90s and everything, it was like Texas was generally the number three place in the country to shoot. And it all really had to do, because this is a state's an incredibly easy location to sell to people. So you have a lot of diversity in locations. You have good weather most of the time uh so you don't have to you know it's heat but at the same time it's not snowing or you know flooding or things like that for the most part so 
365 days a year, you're probably going to be able to do pretty well. So anyway, you would build those things on those sort of uh, attractions that you had. And then suddenly it became about tax incentives and who's going to give the most money. And to me, what it has done, it has taken away the creativity of, of, a, of a director and, and what they want on the screen and what's on the page into, okay, well, who can give us the most money and we'll just change the script or we'll call it something else. And so in that respect, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, but it's we're now into probably 15 years of this sort of stuff and it's not changing and it's not gonna change. And But when you took states like New Mexico and Louisiana, uh, there's just not quite the diversity there that you, you would like to have. So, you know, it would be great if everybody took a look at it and said economically, you know, what do we have to sell? Because I don't think this works in all 50 states it, and it shouldn't. Uh, but, you know, for Texas, it was an easy sell. For Georgia, it's a pretty easy sell. And back in the 90s, my biggest competitor when I was the director of the film commission was that generally we were Dallas, Austin, Houston, whatever was going toe to toe with Atlanta generally on things. And in most cases we won out and it was because we just had more to offer and the crews had more experience. The Atlanta crews have always been good, but that's a state that, that it makes a great deal of sense to do this in. But at the same time, you're pretty much limited to the Atlanta area because that is the main you know, hub in, in that state. Whereas here in Texas, you know, there's really probably four. And if there was any given time back in the early 90s, it was a battle between Dallas, Austin, Houston on a regular basis about who had the most filmmaking. So that's three cities, you know, that could bring in a lot of business and put a lot of people to work. And San Antonio was always kind of right out there on the cusp. So, you know, I mean, if there was a state that probably could, you know, put forth a good incentive and really make a lot of money out of it, it would have been Texas. But our legislatures never, ever worked that way. They're not, they never were too much into giving away money. Certainly the high-tech stuff got it. And certainly Governor Perry, when he was in office, was interested, you know, in trying to bring in as much business, and they have. But for some reason, the film industry, they just never have been able to grasp it. They don't understand it. Um, and I, and I get it. I understand why you don't understand it because generally it's, it's about glamor, but it's really not about glamor. It's hard work, no matter what, what you do. And you had a, a number of people that were already here and working in the business, but now it's a situation of like, you know, give us the money or we're not going to come. And all of those people that we had worked with in the return business and all of the things that went on that doesn't make any difference anymore. It's all about the almighty dollar. So, you know, you're in competition with these sort of places. And if we're not going to, I don't think we have to be as, as give away as much money as some of these other states do, but you've got to get in the game. And right, right. now we're not in it. Gotcha. Yeah. That, I, I think that's interesting. I think, I don't know, this is kind of an anecdotal observation, but I feel like Hollywood has definitely gotten a lot less risk or a lot more risk averse over the years too and it's it's gotten a lot more corporate and you don't have even i mean obviously film has always been a business right but it seems like it's gotten super intense and just gotten worse as like i said as um kind of wall street's gotten involved and you don't have the same you know you had heads of studios back in the in the older filmmaking days like in the 80s 70s that would invest in kind of a passion project but now it's kind of more about the bottom line and, and the art has definitely suffered. Well, it's sort of like uh, the country in, in general in, in, in the fact that uh, the middle class kind of is going away. And so what's happened with the studios these days is, is that the, the days of doing uh, what would be low budget and certainly mid-range budget are gone. Right. So in other words, we're going to make a 200, 300 million dollar film. We're going to throw all of our marketing into all of that. And, you know, just pray that it goes very well. But you're not getting those uh, uh, smaller films. And, I mean, the, the bread and butter for us and any sort of state that was trying to uh, create a, a, a base and everything like that was you had to start out with the very low-budget stuff. And you got into TV in the old days of the television movies and things like that. But you had these low-budget and then mid-range budget films. Well, 
now it's 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 either rich or poor. Right. There, there is no in between, and I think that's a, a that's a real sad sort of situation. But then you know you can look over and, and look at some of these films like Heaven and Hell, that was done over in New Mexico, and Crazy Heart, and things like that. I mean, they, these are relatively low budget films, but they're more festival type films. And festivals are basically what the low budget and mid range have to get into these days. But the studios have gone away from it, which is, I think, is part of the problem. But when you have all of this action and special effects sort of things, it just drives up the price of the movie. And, and story, unfortunately, gets lost. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, it's a weird time, too, that even I feel like you know, kind of the that million to maybe fifty million, even even that kind of you know scope of a film, you don't see as much as of lately. It's like you're saying, it's kind of the the superhero movies and franchises like that, or you know, where a bulk of the financing is going. Well, and it's like I say, they've just done away with the whole middle range of the thing because that the the other side of that, what's costly is is, is that you have to promote those films and the marketing on all that sort of stuff, and so. They, they're just not really doing it because they'd rather just roll the dice on the big one and pray that it goes okay. And but it's it's put a lot of people out of work. And you know, and it's certainly for the, with as many really great writers and things that you know that are trying to get started in the business. I, it's very hard to get started in the business on a two hundred million. <laughs> right, film. seriously, not a lot of those being made no. on a yearly basis. So I definitely agree. Um, one thing that I th- you touched on that I think a lot of people are probably unfamiliar with is sort of the blue collar element of film production because a lot of people think you know it's very you know it's glamorous there there are trailers and whatnot but the actual production the nitty gritty elements of it are you know there's a lot of physical labor and and you know things like carpentry and that sort of work that goes into making a film and it's not all glitz and glamour. Well, it, uh, this, that's, I think, the, the biggest problem that we have to deal with, certainly when, uh, with our own legislature, but just to the average American public, is, is that this is really, as you said, it's a blue-collar business. These are tradesmen. Uh, I, I use the analogy, and you may remember this from my business of film class, is that you know, this is like building a house. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you're, you've got to have that strong foundation, but the people to put the foundation in, and then it's the framers, and it's the plumbers and the electricians and the roofers and the masons and all this sort of stuff. Well, that's that's exactly what a film is. It's it's nothing but a bunch of tradesmen coming together and collaborating to, just like to, to build a home and all of the components that have to be done together. All of these people have to work together to do that. And um, and a lot of the stuff that you hear about this is well, these are not full time jobs. Well. Neither is the housing business or the building industry. You know, everybody goes from one project to the next. What you really need is as many projects going on in a year as you possibly can in order to make a good living. But to say that they're not full-time jobs, tell that to the person that's working the 12, 14, 16 hour a day for weeks at a time. Uh, It's hard work. I, I grew up in an agricultural, you know, community in a family where you put out a crop and it's a very similar sort of situation. And it's long hours and a lot of uh, hurry up and wait and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, everybody has to work together and collaborate on it. But it's it's the glamour, as I used to say, I've ridden in a couple of limos in my life. <laughs> but other than that, I don't know where the glamour is. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, I've, I actually had a, you know, I've had friends that have worked as production assistants. And I mean, like you're saying, it's a grind a 12, 13, 14 hour day. And, you know, you might get on, on location at, you know, five o'clock in the morning and you're there until eight o'clock at night when the last, last crew member is out, you know? Well, and that's, I think that's the, the, to the people who are in it and, and who work on it, it it's, it's very, uh, I, I think kind of, um, not fair to them that people think of it as being such a glamorous thing, but but I mean, you know, even to the actors, uh, you know, I, a lot of people are like, well, they make so much money and they do make a lot of money, uh, some of them anyway. <laughs> but, but the point being is, is that, uh, you know, they're, they're naked up there. They're basically, they're on the line and what you're doing at that particular moment may not seem like a lot of hard work, but if, if there's not a payoff 
And if for some reason you're involved in something that tanks or isn't any good, your career is on the line. And so every time you see a performer up there, you may think, well, gee, you know, they're kind of pampered and this, that, and the other. But, you know, you're only as good as your last job. <laughs> right. Very, very fickle industry, to be sure. Uh, but let's go ahead and let's segue a little bit about kind of what you, what got you in, involved in film to begin with and, and the arts. Well, I uh, came from another really lucrative business called the theater <laughs> and with great aspirations of being an actor. And, you know, I obviously did well in high school and in college at it and all that sort of stuff. But that was one of those things where everybody, you know, and I always tell my students, this is like when you tell someone that you're a theater major, the first thing they're going to say is you're going to get that teaching degree. You? <laughs> and uh, man, I wasn't going to do that. And I didn't. And lo and behold, look what happened. Yeah, right. But uh, but still, it's it was a tough situation and, and hard to make a living at, and I didn't, so I had to do something else. And I was really, for about 18 months, um, right after college, I, I was in two repertory companies that failed. And um, so, you know, just out on the streets. And so I kind of floundered around and then, you know, kind of went from job to job, and, and I was just trying to stay alive. And then one day I ended up the Texas Employment Commission, Texas Workforce Commission now, is a guy had a job for me and it was up at the uh, University of Texas in Austin um, in their communications department and what was then KLRN TV, now KLRU. And uh, it part of the requirements of that job was to apply or know how to use television makeup. <laughs> the guy, it's just like, yeah you know how to do this, don't you? And I said, well, I've, you know, I've done it on myself. And he goes, look, how many people are going to know how to do this? So anyway, I got that job. That was in 1974. And um, so I learned television makeup and I had other things that I did. It wasn't just that, but, but about the same time they came up with the pilot for uh, Austin city limits. And my boss, uh, I mean, you know, that, that was a show that just, it's it's amazing that it's still on because at the time it was not an easy sell because PBS wasn't doing like they had some music shows but certainly not something like Austin City right. Limits was so there was a lot of people who weren't too crazy about that show being done he didn't want to do it so he said hey are you doing it it's going to be a bunch of rock and roll you know drug addicts and stuff so <laughs> uh, I got the job and uh, anyway well that was that was the career changing situation because suddenly every week my name is on that scroll going up as the makeup artist and so suddenly I started getting jobs from outside of the station which obviously paid a lot more money than what I was making there I stayed on there for three years and then I just kept getting more work on the outside and it became a point where it's like I'm making more money on the outside if I devoted full time to doing it so I went freelance in 19, late 1977, and boy, it was, uh, it was tough. Uh, it, it, you know, you would have these years that would be pretty good, and then the next year would just really suck. And I was, fortunately, because of my theater background, I knew carpentry. So I had friends who worked in the uh, uh, construction business who would hire me every now and then so I could do that. My, both my families were ranchers and so I would sometimes go work on the family ranch or something like that. I mean you just had to do whatever you had to do to stay alive. And then it became apparent after a while and this was like you know late 70s early 80s that uh, uh, I needed to move if I was going to continue doing it. And so the two choices were LA or Dallas because at that particular time most of the industry that was happening in Texas was happening at Dallas with the Dallas TV series and other things. Well, I went out to L.A. and I had friends out there, you know, who would have helped me. But, boy, I I didn't like it. I It was just too big and too crazy and too weird. And I knew my wife wouldn't go. We weren't <laughs> married at the time, but I knew she wouldn't go. And so I made the decision to stay. And the idea was probably to go up to Dallas. But then this opportunity came up at the Texas Film Commission. <coughs> and I was very familiar with the Film Commission, and, and I knew what they did. And I felt like I could help out. I, besides the makeup thing, I had started focusing on locations. Um, that may sound like a weird, you know, sort of uh, thing to move from, but I'm a 
type of guy who I'm an explorer. I love to drive around. I love the history. I love antiques or used to and, and that sort of thing. And so I would just, you know, if there was a road, I wanted to go on it. If I was going somewhere, I never went the same way twice. I always find an alternative route just to see what's out there. So I had heard about this location management and location scouting, and it just sounded like something that I could do, and I and I was good at it. And so when that opportunity opened up at the film commission, well, suddenly now I have a chance to have a full-time job. And I think that was in 1983 when I came on. By 1983, I had done every conceivable possible job that you could do on a film set, and a lot of it was things like grip work. And what I found out was is that, you know, bad knees and, you know, things like this, grip work is probably not where I needed to be. So anyway, the fact to have, you know, uh, insurance, you know, and, uh, you know, you're, you're approaching your mid-30s and you got to start thinking about these things. So <laughs> anyway, so it, it worked out and I got the job and they, they asked me at the time, it's like, well, how, how long will you commit to this? And somebody had already told me, say, say three years. And so three years sounded like a long time to me. So I said three and they said, okay. And I was there for 22 years <laughs> from the bottom all the way to the top. Wow. Um, that'd actually be a good, like, tell us what it, what is grip work? What is it? Because I don't think a lot of people are familiar, well, you know, outside of film circles, what yeah, those guys even do. There's all those crazy little jobs that you see at the if you watch the end of the credits and know what it most of these term terminology comes from the theater so if you know anything about you know uh if you've been to london or england or anything like that a grip is a suitcase you know that's your grip that's something you're going to pick up and move that's what grips do they move stuff and mostly heavy stuff but they're engineers really is what they are so anytime you have like a dolly track or you have, uh, you know, these big filters and screens and stuff like that, somebody has to figure out a way to put lay this stuff, no matter where you are in the middle of the pasture, in the middle of the street or whatever it may be, in order to, you know, come up with a way to get a smooth dolly track to, you know, put filters on the sun and all these sort of things. And you've got these, you know, these, all of these big apparatus and things to move around they're they they're they make things happen they're they're magic they're, they're they're the people who do all the hard work so you know you got a strong back that's great and people say weak mind you can't have a weak mind as a grip grips have to be smart because like i say you're really engineering things so they just pick things up and they move it and they you know create whatever it is that the director and primarily the cinematographer and the uh the gaffer uh, who is the key lighting person does. And a gaffer, we might as well just go to that. Yeah, it's another English term. Basically, it's a, I, I don't, I, I, this was explained to me, it was like, okay, you know, you're on stage and you need to move this light and they would use a fishing gaff, uh, these long poles gotcha. with a hook thing on it and they would adjust the light and it would be like, well, don't they have a ladder? <laughs> but anyway, they, that's the gaff thing came nice. from that. And so that's your chief lighting person. And, and that person's assistant is a best boy. <laughs> and there's other best boys around as well. And a lot of times the best boy is a girl. So at any rate, but all that terminology comes from all kinds of different things, mostly theater and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's funny. Uh, so tell us, I wanted to hear, I feel like I, you told me a story way back when I was taking your class about working on the uh, film Piranha. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. Which I've actually seen and I, I, I can see some of the scenes in my head actually. Well just sitting it was here with you. uh you know, the, the people always ask, like, what films did you work on? And I could <laughs> tell you them and you would have never heard of most of them. But Piranha is the one that most people have. This was of course a uh, <clears throat> I think it probably was about a seven hundred and fifty, eight hundred thousand dollar film that was done here in Texas back in nineteen seventy eight. Uh, it was written by John Sayles and uh, directed by Joe Roth. And these are all, uh, uh, I just went blank. Um, oh, the real famous low budget filmmaker. Uh, I can't think of Oh, uh, Roger, was Roger Corman? Corman. Yeah. yeah. So this is all, this is all, these are all Roger Corman stuff. 
And uh, so you had all of these. Joe Roth was a, you know, along with any number of other people were all a bunch of directors that worked for Corman at one time. And, and so you had John Sales involved in it and uh, uh, just a lot of notable people at the time who later on went on to bigger and better things. But anyway, so the whole basis, of course, was that, uh, you know, they needed a lot of water and good water and clean water. Well, so the primary location was based there in San Marcos, the San Marcos River, but primarily the headwaters of Aquarina Springs. So that was their little resort sort of deal. Uh, with the piranha, you know, escaping. And and so you had like, you know, all of, there were lots of co-eds, lots of Southwest Texas State University co-eds, co-eds in this film. And and uh, my first job when I first got there was making blood. <laughs> and uh, literally in the back of a pickup, you know, using a lot of red dye and um, caro syrup. It's just nasty. You're my, ruin my shoes and, Everything else, everything was just stuck to everything because of all the caro syrup. <laughs> but they eventually put me on the second unit, which was the good place to be. Uh, the first unit was just out of complete control. There was, uh, it was a, you know, a, there were a lot of corners that were cut in making that film because they didn't have a lot of money. And anytime you're shooting on water, it drives the expenses up. And so they trash boats and, all kinds of different things. But the second unit on that show was all about the stunts. So yeah, we were with the stunt guys and uh, crazy people, really <laughs> crazy people do really crazy things. But uh, anyway, the director on the second unit uh, was a guy named Dick Lowry, who later on became a pretty major uh, television movie director from Oklahoma. And... Uh, at any rate, uh, I, I got on that particular part of it, and so we, we just kind of did all the stunts. And uh, there was a, we were in the in San Marcos at the Aquarina Springs. We were in the Guadalupe River on uh, River Road up above New Braunfels, and then eventually up on Lake Austin. And while we were in uh, on the Guadalupe, we had a scene there where uh, there was supposed to be a fisher, fisherman and, and a canoe and all that stuff. So they sent me and another PA up to get a canoe and they just said, well, just float it down. <laughs> and so, okay, fine. And I, you know, I'm a kayaker now, but I didn't know anything about that back in those days. And so me and this poor girl came down in this canoe and then we didn't realize it was there, but Waco Falls was on the way down and not very far from where we were shooting. And we went over Waco Falls and... <laughs> Did not stay up. And when we went over, she went out. She was in front and went way out front and everything. But I was in the back and I got caught underneath the falls. Oh, shit. And my glasses came off and I was freaking out because I tried to catch my glasses. And then I suddenly realized that's the least thing in the world I need to be worrying about. Right. I'm about to drown. And I was able to kick my way up against the falls and I pushed myself out of the river because it was pinning me up against the falls and uh, anyway so I came up and everybody's going you know they were all wondering where I'd been nobody <laughs> knew and nobody uh, realized that I was about to drown and uh, they didn't really care <laughs> right. and I had lost my glasses and I became absolutely useless yeah. because I can't see very well oh, so man. but there were there were all kinds of horrible stories that happened on that film but you know, it's another one of those where, like yourself, most pe young people, you know, when I mention films that I was involved with, they don't know. But most people do know Piranha. <laughs> oh, man, that's like a scene out of Deliverance or something, right? Well, it, you know, it, it, it had its own little cult following. And, of course, they made others. But it, it was it was fun. It was it was crazy. There was uh, all of the, you know, trying to make all that stuff. You know, you, you have all these great special effect things that you could do now. Back then, it was just, you know dream it up, make it up on the, on the spot. Right. Uh, a lot of those guys that trained under Corman, I think, went on to do amazing stuff. Well, it's... That they picked up under his... Yeah, I mean, it was it was a great training ground, I think, for everybody. And uh, so... Uh, but, I mean, you know, that's that's the way things used to be done. You, you, you just came up through the ranks, and pretty soon you didn't have to work on, you know, cheap, scary, you know, <laughs> right, unsafe films like that. And, and that's how we all, you know, all the crew that here in Texas and anywhere, that's the way you do it. 
start out on the small stuff and hopefully you live through it. <laughs> live through it. Nice. Um, but let, let, let's go back to your telling us a little bit about the film commission. Maybe, I mean, you've touched on this a bit, but talk a little bit about kind of what the film commission actually does. Cause I don't think there's a lot of awareness. Well, you know, that was one of those sort of things where I thought, well, you know, this is going to be easy. I mean, cause I, had spent all this time working, you know, on films. I figured I knew everything there was to know. And I pretty much did about filming, about, you know, on location. But the film commission's job starts much earlier than that. It is about trying to bring those projects in and reading scripts and then finding all of the things that you're you're supposed to find that fit uh, the script. And a lot of these things you had to judge, like, is this for real or not? A lot of times people never had their money. You know, they were just trying to promote the film and get it up. And so you kind of had to, you know, have all these phone calls with people and, and try to, you know, annotate whether, you know, if this is going to really ever happen or not, if you had a choice in it. And that was kind of the hard part because that that's really early, early pre-production. Uh, you're really in development on a lot of those sort of things. So some make it and some never do but uh this annotating of scripts you know you had to know your way around texas and you needed a very very serious uh, amount of photography uh you know back all that stuff up so at the time when i got there uh their their photographic uh department was not in real good shape and that was something that i you know, worked really hard on. Plus, I was the guy who had been out with the crews a little more recently, and so I think a lot of us who crew members back in the time sometimes wondered if the film commission wasn't really doing more things for the producers than they were for the actual crew, because in those days, you weren't really getting the A positions. You PAs would be one thing, and of course, if you were up in Dallas or something like that, then you probably had a grip department and a you know, maybe your lighting department and a few camera people, but everybody else they brought in, well, we didn't, you know, if you were working, you, you know, you didn't want to be a PA for the rest of your life. <laughs> Seriously. You, you really wanted to go up the chain. And so you're looking to the film commission to, so, you know, I had a pretty good line on the crews and knew who the people were. And, but, uh, it, it was a very tough job. I mean, it was a fun job. I mean, I, I can't, I, I, I could not ever have imagined having worked for the state doing anything else I would have probably gone screaming at <laughs> night because you know there were politics involved in it and government involved in it and you know it's 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 a kind of a strange little mix between Hollywood and and state government right and there there are certain things that are alike but other things but the thing about films is is that you know if we don't need it today we needed it yesterday and you try to get state government to cooperate with you on those sort of things so you had to you know you had to have connections with a highway department and the parks and wildlife department and the comptroller's office and you know and you had to know how all of these things were done and you know it's permitting of of, of uh, you know people shooting on the streets and out on the county roads and the highways and you know and you get these scripts you know where they're like you know they're gonna blow something up burn something down destroy something and you you know have to talk your way into allowing somebody to because, I mean, really, the easiest thing to do is just say no. So that was a lot about what the Film Commission was, was that I can't get a no. I may not have a yes yet, but I can't get a no. I have to figure out a way. And people would just say no, and then you had to find a way to go around, to do an end around them and try to get them to change their mind. And then, of course, in the early days of filming, certainly here in Texas, um, you know, there were bridges that were burned and, and locations that were burned and people who didn't want films back because we had a bad experience on that. Well, when was that? Oh, that was 10 years ago. Well, you know, things have changed. And so you'd have to go in and get people to, you know, change their minds and try to do things. And some places you were able to do that, some places you weren't. So it was, you had one foot in the uh, production and you had the other foot, you know, in the state of Texas. And uh, we, we, we managed to do a lot of incredible things that I would have never, ever would have believed have been possible. But, you know, every now and then it works. Tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you, I guess, brought in or people that maybe some notable folks that you worked with that you kind of enjoyed. 
Well, you know, there was a lot of bad stuff. I will tell you that. I mean, you know, you read these scripts and sometimes you just wonder how things get done. And, uh, and, and why would somebody, you know, want to do this film in the first place? But, and then you have to go that out and sell that to a community. But, I mean, there was a period of time in there, especially with the television movies. Those things were already, always very tough because they happened very fast. And, you know, there's not a lot of money in that sort of thing. And so you're not spreading it all around. The one that I think the one that really basically I was one of the proudest of and, and we worked really hard to make all of it happen was Lonesome Dove. Uh, that was a situation where, you know, for all practical purposes, most people would think, well, that's a slam dunk because, you know, it's all the exception for the Montana part. It's all written for Texas. Why wouldn't they do it here? Well, it's all based around if, if you're a producer, what you would like to do is be able to just walk out of your hotel and find all the locations within 15 minutes. Well, let's think about Lonesome Dove. You know, this is the Rio Grande border. Uh, you know, you need the Rio Grande, or you got to at least believe that's in that particular world. And the fact that they're moving from all the way to Montana. Well, they the Montana section of that film was New Mexico. And really, I think if, you know, obviously if this was done today, it would all be New Mexico because of the incentive. But... But still, you know, you had the Rio Grande up there. You had really interesting terrain and all that sort of stuff. You could have done the whole thing. And the idea was, if you were the producers and uh, you were going to base out of, say, Albuquerque or Santa Fe, and the other alternative was to come to Texas and be in Del Rio for six weeks, <laughs> where do you want to be? <laughs> so that became a big issue at one point. Bill Whitliffe, of course, you know, um, was one of the producers, but also the, the person who, you know, uh, wrote the script from McMurtry's book. So Bill called us and he said, listen, you know, we, we've got to, we, we got to do something here. These guys are all going to Santa Fe. They're going to take the whole damn thing. And so we put it into high gear. Well, we were trying to find the lonesome dove, the beginning of the picture around Austin. Well, you know, try as hard as you can. Austin doesn't look like Del Rio or the Rio Grande border anywhere. So we looked at the, you know, the Colorado River, the San Marcos River, the Llano River, the Perdinalis River, you name every river. And it just wasn't working out. And so finally push came to shove and it's just like, look, we got to go down to the border. And so down in Del Rio, there had been out of, primarily out of uh, Brackettville, Alamo Village, uh, Happy Shahan had built that for the original Alamo, Wayne's Alamo. And so you had that western town there. Well, about 20 miles from him is the Rancho Rio Grande, which belonged to a guy by the name of Bill Moody, of the Moody family out of Galveston. Well, Bill had about, I think it was 55,000 acres along the Rio Grande just outside well. of of uh, Del Rio. And, you know, if you're driving through that country, it all pretty much looks the same. Very scrubby, you know, mesquite, brush, and that sort of thing. But you get inside Bill's ranch, and there, there's just multiple different-looking geographic locations. He has two creeks on his land. That's the thing about it is, you know, you start talking about shooting on the Rio Grande. Well, half of it's in New Mexico, half of it's in, you know, the United States. And if you go over on the other side, well, again, you're going to have to deal with the Mexican government and all the stuff that goes on with it. So he has a creek that was controllable, Pinto Creek on his land. He had, and then he drove us all around that thing, and we got to that point where Kerry White, the production designer, built uh, the town of Lonesome Dove. And once you got to that spot, it just sold itself. The river bends, comes around, there's a cliff. There's a ravine sort of thing that's going through there. Once we showed them those pictures, they got very excited about it. But we had to get them there. And uh, so we actually, Bill Clements was governor at the time, and Clements was a, not a big fan of movies, but he loved the book. And so we were able to talk the governor into giving us his plane. So we took everybody down there, showed them that site, and that's what sold it or Del Rio, plus you had Alamo Village, because it's the whole scene where they're supposed to be in San Antonio. And then uh, there was a, a considerable shot around Austin using Lake Austin. 
and uh, an area over by Creedmoor uh, as for what was the whole uh, buffalo hunter scene. Uh, and then you had Willie Nelson's uh, Town of Luck at the time, which had just been built for Redheaded Stranger. So that's how we put it all together. And then eventually they did go up into New Mexico for the Montana part, but that, that whole film could have been lost very easily. Uh, other notable ones, I think another really big one that we pulled off that wasn't necessarily easy was Courage Under Fire. Uh, that at the time was the largest film that ever shot in Texas. And uh, so we were able, it was supposed to have been Fort Benning in Georgia. And then they had all of the Kuwait, Iraqi stuff. They didn't know where they were going to do that. That was just proposed to either go overseas and they'd been looking at land in, uh, out in the West, uh, California, Arizona. But when you get over in that part of the world, that's BLM land, you know, Bureau of Land Management, and they're very strict about what they'll let you do. And so they, weren't a, they, they had a whole tank war. So at any rate, we had the Fort Benning, Georgia stuff. We got all of that. That was Austin. The actual uh, Texas capital becomes the U.S. capital in that film. The scene between... Uh, um, Anyway, so Denzel we, Washington. Well, it was Denzel and uh, I can't think of the other guy's name. But anyway, there's a scene in there. You have to have the capital in the background. And so they used the state capital for that. And then, you know, all the neighborhoods. And then it was the Austin uh, State School became uh, uh, the, the entry for Fort Benning. But they had all that stuff that they had to do in Kuwait. Uh, and so anyway, the producer on that film, one of the line, original line producer on it was a guy I'd worked with before. And I kept telling him, I said, look, there's a place out by El Paso that I think will work. And the location manager at the time argued with me on that because he goes, I've flown over that. There's too much brush. It has to be real open. Well, there's a guy out there who has a, uh, a ranch uh, um, about 30 miles east of... Uh, El Paso, that at one particular time, they went in and just bulldozed a bunch of the desert. They wanted to put in olive trees. And so they took all that brush out. And he has a very famous steakhouse that's out there. And uh, so I said, look, I and it has sand cliffs. It's beautiful sand cliffs. It's been used in a number of movies. And I said, I, I've got to show you this place, but the location manager. So he met me in uh, El Paso. And uh, we drove out there, and that sold. So we got the entire film. So that, at the time, in 1995, I think that was the largest film that ever shot in Texas. And so that was a big one. And, um, and then ultimately, of course, you know, the real big one, while I was still there, was the Alamo, which uh, was just huge. That was, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for, because <laughs> uh, that, that thing had a very long life. Um, it took a long time to do all the scouting. It took a long time to, they looked in, I think, uh, 14 different states. And at one particular point in time, a uh, production designer who was from Austin um, on that film uh, basically told me that we were number four. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> right. You know, and that was one of those things, like if we had lost that film, I mean, you know, I think that probably would have gotten fired. I, <laughs> how do you lose the Alamo? You know, but that was once again, going back, the Canadians were involved in it. They were looking up in Canada. They were looking in California. They were looking in New Mexico. They were looking at all these different places. And, and we were able to find that one ranch out there by the, the uh, Pernalis River that just had everything. And that was the big sell. But, boy, that thing went on forever, you know, because we changed directors and then it got pushed, you know, and starting. And I mean, we had to do so many things to make that happen. But anyway, you know, it was, uh, the Alamo was one of those things where it had a, it had a very long tail and, uh, you know, and there were what we referred to as the Alamaniacs. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like people who follow the Civil War or something like that. People who, you know, they were very concerned about, you know, how, how it was going to be portrayed. They didn't either like the first film or they didn't like any of the other stuff. And what were you going to do about this? And, and uh, one day I get the call in the office and uh, it is the great, 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 however many great granddaughter of General Lissimo Santiana. And she is quite upset. <laughs> uh, and that she wants to sue, she wants to sue Ron Howard. She wants to sue me. She wants to sue the state of Texas. And it's like, what? 
And it's just like, well, it's the way my, you know, great great grandfather had been, you know, portrayed. And it's just like, you know, I don't have anything to do with that part of it. And for all we know, I mean, this may be a good one for you, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I never ever heard from her again. But I swear to God, three hours later, we get a call from the great 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 <laughs> grandson of General Sam Houston. Oh wow! And all he wanted to do was just be in the movie. <laughs> But, you know, all kinds of strange things. But there were a lot of, you know, a lot of wonderful projects to work on there. Uh, you were mentioning Lockhart a while ago, and one of my favorites about Lockhart was that it was Blaine, Missouri, uh, in the uh, Christopher Guest film. Uh, God, I'm blanking on the name, too. <laughs> That's terrible. See, this is what happens when you get old. But, right. Uh, well, this, I think these microphones actually act as memory blocks as yeah, well. Because um, <laughs> it's happened to me too, I and I just can't. It, but anyway, but, I, you know, it was just, and you saw a lot of people's careers begin. And that was the other thing that we did there as well, is that, the, you know, that whole class that I teach over <clears throat> at um, Texas State on the business of film comes out of people just walking in and off the street going, I'd really like to get into the movie business. What do I do? And it's pretty much the same answer for everybody. So you had to counsel a lot of people. You had to deal with that. But you were dealing with the general public a great deal. And trying them, as I said earlier, is to get people to do something that they normally would never, ever, even remotely think about doing. Have you done? Have you gone back to the Alamo Village there? Because I know I actually, I toured it with you a while back. And that was like 2009. And I'm sure it's gone well, to hell since then it was it, already kind it's of it's gone now the drought uh back in 2011 there was a fire and uh so it was consumed but it was falling apart yeah and that's the thing about movies is is that nothing's built to last and it's you know it's pretty much there for a, a short amount of time unless it's something like what happy shahan did down at bracketville but but uh, anyway, it was getting real dangerous. It was falling apart, you know, and and that's just like anything that stays vacant. But, you know, as I say, that was during the drought. And there were a lot of fires. We often kind of wonder if that was really, you know, I think somebody said lightning maybe. I don't know, but it could have been just somebody dropping a match. But we, right. we there were any number of tours that were going on after for a while. And I finally, the last one that they did, which was a thing out of UT, it's like, we can't do this anymore. It's dangerous unsafe, out here. Yeah. It's very unsafe. And, you know, I was always worried about somebody being bit by a rattlesnake or something. But uh, but those buildings were falling apart. But it was, you know, a major, major... It was, the, at one time, the largest standing set in North America. Pretty impressive. I, I still have pictures, actually, from the time that we visited <laughs> okay. um, that I'll have to share with you. And Mr. Reimers was, the, was Mr. Reimers Ranch there. He was such a wonderful man. He he, he passed away about a year and a half ago. And uh, But we, we couldn't have done that thing without him. I mean, he, he really opened up his ranch, and uh, it was very accessible, easy to get into. He had paved roads and everything like that. And they put their entire production company out there, which is very unusual. Are you familiar with the AMC series, The Sun? Because I believe they did some production work out there on the ranch. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people had used that ranch prior to that, but generally for just little scenic things, you know, and stuff like that. But, I mean, you've got the Perdinalis River running on one side of it. You've got cliffs and everything, and <laughs> it's very pastoral. It's very pretty. and uh, But, yeah, The Sun is... That's that's probably one of the greatest things we have going for us right now is is that TV series and they're coming back in the fall and nobody I know and we I have a number of former students working on that one and but all my crew friends and everything like that everybody speaks very highly uh, of that group of people and especially Pierce Brosnan he's supposed to be just a really nice guy awesome. which is always nice to hear right exactly I'm sure it's things can get pretty tense on a film set. Uh, I th I'd like to next transition over to, you know, what you've been doing at Texas State and building, but I, I want to ask kind of selfishly if you have a, uh, a, a good Terrence Malick story you can share with us. Cause, uh, I know I, I talked to you about having Mark Bristol on. Well, Mark opened up our podcast last week with, with a humdinger that I swear I w <laughs> could barely hold myself together. So I want to see if, if you have a good one for us. Well, maybe. I, I, we've talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think it was the first meeting really because 
um, you know, this is back in the 90s, probably mid-90s or so, and, and all these people were calling our office, and it's just like, <clears throat> do you know how I can get in touch with Terrence Malick? It's like, <laughs> no. I, and it's like, well, I understand he's living here in Austin. And I mean, when those first started, rumors started to happen, it's just like, well, I, you know, I really, I, you know, is he? I, I don't know. Certainly hasn't talked to us, and, <laughs> and he doesn't have to, but... Anyway, so we get a lot of calls about Terry Malick and the fact that, the, you know, that he was in town. Well, anyway, one day in the office, you know, I get a call and it's just like Terrence Malick is online too. Well, I have these friends who I've known all my life who would call me every now and then and they, in order to get to me, they would <laughs> say things, tell one of my interns or one of my staff members that it's, you know, it's, it's Steven Spielberg on line three or whatever. And we always knew it was one of them. So I thought, well, here we go again. And I pick up the call. Unfortunately, I was civil. But uh, anyway, there's this strange little voice. And, you know, and then he drops a name that I know. And, and it's like, well, okay, maybe it is. And uh, so anyway, he wanted to meet and talk about some projects. So we were to meet at a restaurant over in West Austin. And I got there first, and I look around, and I don't see anybody that could be Terrence Malick that I think would be Terrence Malick. And so I go back out in the parking lot, and uh, all of a sudden, this little Nissan stanza pulls into the parking lot, and it's all dirty and everything, and it's like, I can't be him, you know? And this little guy gets out, walks in, he's by himself, and I'm like, no, I guess I just, I don't think that's him, but... So I follow him in, and sure enough, it's Terry Malick. And he's the most unassuming, the last person in the world that you would ever think, you know, to be who he is. Right. But uh, it's just a sweet guy, and uh, and we became friends after that. But, uh, you know, it was just it, this, you have this image and this illusion of who you th think this person's going to be. And Terry is so far removed from that. And, you know, he's not a very public guy. He's very quiet. He's very shy. Uh, but, you know, such an incredible talent. And uh, so, you know, I, I think my my great story on him was that when they gave him an award at the uh, at the uh, Austin Film Festival, the thing that the big awards show that they do every year. And so he was so nervous because he's just, like I say, he doesn't do these sort of things. And so they had their little hospitality suite before the thing started and his uh, one of his uh, uh, stepsons had said, Terry, you know, would you like to have a drink? And he goes, oh, I, I don't really think I should. You know, I'm getting this award. I don't know if I should have a drink. And he goes, well, you know, actually, you know, it might be good for you to kind of, <laughs> and he goes, well, okay. You know, so they brought him a margarita and he took about two sips, sips of it and that was about it. And then, you know, the whole big deal was Sissy Spacek uh, uh, was, you know, presenting him. And she gave this incredibly eloquent speech about working with Terry on Badlands. And and then Terry gets up there, and I swear, it's like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> he stammered for a minute, thanked his mother, and walked off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Terry Malick for nice. us. Awesome. Uh, I always enjoy a good Terry Malick story on the podcast. So, um, But let, let's transition over. Like I said, I wanted to, I will kind of wrap up on um, kind of what you've done at Texas State to try to bring, I guess, a little bit, you know, build up the film and television production kind of uh, instructional program there. And, you know, I, since I took classes with you and and through the department, I'd like to hear a little bit about what, what you've got going on. Well, it, it was one of those sort of things where uh, when I was at the Film Commission and, um, and as I said earlier, we had all this counseling of all these people, we get all these people, you know, I want to get into the business. And it ran the gamut of film students to just people who walked in off the street to people who had totally good, legitimate jobs doing whatever it was that they were doing that would go, I'd really like to do this. What do I have to do? And it was the same story for everybody. You got to start at the bottom and work your way up. So we had a pretty strong intern program there that one of my, um, staff members had started and so she would always make sure that you know myself and others would come in and talk to these students and see what we could do to try to help them out encourage them and things like that and I really got into that 
And what I realized, besides my own staff, because I've hired everybody there from almost the first year that I was there, uh, they just turned to me to hire people because I was pretty good at hiring people. And, um, and we had good people while I was there. But anyway, I just it, it's like I'm teaching. So I needed something else to do. I was 55 when I retired in 2005, and it's just like, okay, I can afford to do this, but at the same time, I still need something to do, and I need to make a little money. So I started thinking about teaching, and as you know from where we're sitting, I don't live in Austin, and I my days of spending time in Austin were about to be over, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't really necessarily going to miss it, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, it's just like, well, it's not going to be UT. And uh, ACC did talk to me about it. But once again, I didn't want to make that drive. And so I just went down to my alma mater at Texas State in the theater department. And the whole story was that one that I told you earlier about I came out of the theater department. And that's the one thing that, and I worked, when I worked at UT and the communications department, it's the one thing I didn't understand was why are film departments and theater departments separate? Because, okay, I understand if you're focusing on film, it's directing and editing and screenwriting and all of these sort of things. But the rest of those jobs, those grips and those gaffers and those makeup artists and those wardrobe people and the design people and uh, construction and all those sort of things, these are where the two walk hand in hand. And I just never understood why they were separate. And at UT back in those days, you mentioned that to the theater department, they didn't want to have anything to do with people that were in film and vice versa on film and theater. And so I just thought, you know what, this worked for me. And I had started bringing in interns from Texas State from the theater department, primarily because of the work ethic. I had found that a lot of people that came to us out of the UT RTF program as well as other RTF programs were kind of entitled people they all wanted to direct and it's like it's not going to work that way and I realize you spent a lot of money and you made films and things like that but that's not how you get a job in the business maybe later maybe that comes for you later but in the beginning it's pretty much the same road for everybody but these kids that we were bringing in from Texas State in the theater department, their work ethic was a lot better. And that's, that's theater in general. Uh, people used to ask me, you know, years, you know, when I was at Southwest Texas State, Texas State and whatever, it's like, oh, what was it like going to school there? I don't know. <laughs> I lived in the theater department all the time. I never left. I had a job there. I had classes there. I guess I went outside for other classes. But I came back to work there every day or every night or on stage or whatever it was. And so it is that commitment. And film is the same way. And my experiences up at UT and other places were that there was this kind of sense of entitlement, that they were better than that. And a lot of them didn't want to intern with us because we weren't on a set. Uh, they weren't going to be doing those sorts of jobs. But what they didn't understand was that we were the best place to find a job later on. Right. So... Anyway, I just decided I was going to go there and see what I could do. So <clears throat> Richard Sodders was the chairman at the time, and, uh, and, and he is the one who had started out a couple of directing classes there. So I said, look, I'd come in and teach you know, this business of film classes about how the business works and how to get a job. And uh, then the other one was a short film development thing, which I had to come up with later on. But at any rate, once we started this thing out, I mean, my classes filled up after the first year, I mean, they were full all the time. So then we knew that there was more interest in that sort of thing. And, you know, obviously a lot of people, no matter what sort of walk of life you're in these days, they, they're out there, people making short films or people that want to do this sort of thing. And so anyway, we've now come up with a pretty much a full curriculum. We don't have a major as of yet, but we've, but practically everybody that I have working over there right now has still one foot in the business. And that's the other thing that I wanted. I, I Sure, we're gonna teach you how to write a, write a script. We're gonna teach you how to direct. We're gonna teach you how to edit. We're gonna do all of the sort of things that the rest of the programs do. But what hopefully between what I brought with my Rolodex and my network and then several other people that we have over there right now is, is that hopefully we can find you a job. 
And that's what it's all about. I mean, really, essentially, I, I have bought a couple of cars from former RTF majors. I know any number of people who have told me, oh, yeah, you know, I was a, I was, that was my major in college, but I couldn't make a living at it. Well, that has as much to do with where you went to school as it does with who you are. Because if you don't have a network and if you, don't, if you can't at least crack the door open for someone, what's the point in doing this? This is a very expensive major. You know, I mean, it's obviously a lot cheaper than it used to be because of the digital world that we live in. But, you know, it's trying to get that first job. That's the hardest thing. And so once people found out about that business of film class, because it essentially is, as I tell people, I am the Southern distributor for PAs. <laughs> That's basically what it amounts to. It's the entry level job. I'm going to teach you how to do it. I'm going to teach you the attitude that you have to, to know in order to be one. And then you go be one, and you won't be one very long. <laughs> so that's the whole idea. But the rest of this stuff has all come about through the fact that people like Brian Poyser, who's teaching with us now, Johnny McAllister, who's now going to take over the department, and, uh, and Susan Busa and uh, Clay Lyford and other people like that, they have, they're either making their own films or they know people who are making them. And so our kids either get on as interns or they come in as PAs. And it's an introductory way into the business besides just going, here's my degree. Right. Well, I, I definitely appreciate you, you know, investing in Texas State, I think, is is really awesome. And that I had the opportunity to come up and, and take some of your of your courses and gain a little bit of insight. I think that's really valuable that you're bringing that back to Texas State, which I think would probably otherwise maybe get overlooked in terms of, of this kind of uh, this kind of curriculum. So I want to, you know, personally thank you yeah, and sure. thank you for those other students at Texas State. I know they appreciate it. Well, it's been, as I always told, told people, this is now the second longest job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's the most rewarding one I think I've ever had. I mean, we did a lot of things at the Film Commission I'm really proud of. We put a lot of people to work and we kept those opportunities going back when we could. <clears throat> but this sort of situation when you're dealing with people, you know, of this age, and it is that whole story that we talked about earlier, people not understanding how the business works. And that's the, really the first couple of days of this class is trying to call those people out. Right. You know, you, you may think this sounds glamorous. You may think this may be the thing that you really want to do. But the reality is, if you're not a collaborative person, if you're not a person who can't work well with other people, if you're, you know, not willing to basically work very long hours and hard hours under, you know, horrible conditions, <laughs> uh, you know, you need to go find something else to do. And it's because it is a freelance type business. Uh, that's the other thing that we're trying to teach also is, is that you need to prepare for this because, you know, that check's not going to be in there every week or every two weeks or every month necessarily. It's going to be, can you live this sort of life? You know, and you need to take care of your finances and understand, you know, wherever you're going or wherever you may be working, it's going to take a while. So it's sort of <clears throat> it's sort of like that situation of being in law school or in med school or something like that. You know, you better be able to, you know, take care of those situations uh, because really the first few years in this business are all about sink or swim. And uh, the idea is to keep swimming and... <laughs> Right. You know, some people don't always make it. But the other thing is, is that you may find, you know, after working in this for a year or two, you know what, this sucks. I don't want to do it anymore. But it's, you know, it's it, it is a very, very different kind of life. And it's not for everybody. Definitely. Uh, I think actually, you know, I've done a couple of my own short films. And I think the actual production process is my my least favorite. Definitely. It's kind of like the stress of it you're trying to figure out oh shit i need to do this i need to do that oh wait no it's like <laughs> there's well, a million things happening at once no there are a million things happening at once and that's why it's got to be that collaborative effort and that's the other thing that i think that i've been seeing here in recent years is that you know there's a lot of people out there these days that just don't play well with others and you, you can't do that i mean you're going to have these as I always tell the students, it's like you're going to go to get a job. It's going to be the greatest thing. And these are, all these people are great and they're all fun to work with. And I really enjoy my life. And then that show's over. And the next one is the thing from hell. <laughs> but that's going to happen. And if you're not able to adapt and realize that those things are going to happen. And, you know, 
that as I always tell people, you know, you just, there are going to be times that you're going to want to quit. But if you quit, that's all anybody remembers. Like I say, it's that last job. So you just have to suck it up, make it happen and realize, and that's the other beauty of this business is, is it's not like a nine to five job that just goes on forever unless you just walk out. You know, this one has a life expectancy. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train and it'll be over and then you can move on to something else. But some people can do that and some people just can't. So, but that it's, it's hard. And, uh, and those first few years uh, can be very, very difficult, you know, on somebody that doesn't have something else to fall back on. So you have to be very judicious with your money and where you live and, you know, and your lifestyle in the beginning. And then later on, it pays off. Well, Tom, I, th- I think that's a good uh, ending point for today. I want to thank you for coming on and getting a little schizoid with me on the podcast today. <laughs> well, my pleasure, Cooper. And it's, I'm, I'm glad to know you're doing this. It's been a lot of fun. And I'm, you know, I certainly enjoyed having I remember you took those workshops with me, which I wish we were still doing those things. But that got to be a, I got to be almost like a full time. Right. Thing too. I can imagine. But uh, once again, thanks. Thanks again for uh, coming on today, Tom. Okay. Thank you.